Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Naveed Sultan. It is a pleasure for many reasons, not least of which is that the Center for Responsible Leadership, for which this podcast is made, was Naveed's brainchild and something he worked very hard to develop and launch. Naveed's passion for leading responsibly began in his youth around the dinner table with his six siblings. Since first meeting Naveed, I have been continuously impressed by his humility, groundedness, openness to learning, and generosity with praise to others. He recognizes clearly that accomplishments as impressive as becoming the chairman of the Institutional Clients Group at City means little without integrity. I'm so glad we had this opportunity to discuss topics so close to both of our hearts. I am so glad to be talking with you today, Naveed. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation, Celia. So I'm going to start with a question that I ask all of my guests at the beginning, which is, what does being a responsible leader mean to you? You know, when I think about responsible leadership, I think it, it requires a profound awareness that when you are in a position of responsibility, your decisions are really consequential for others and it affects people's lives and has impact on economies, environment and societies. Therefore, it is less about you as a leader and more about others. So in other words, what I'm really saying is that when you make decisions as a leader, you need to keep in mind your range of constituencies or your range of stakeholders. So it's employees, it's your clients, it's your suppliers, shareholders, communities, the environment, and even future generations. And while professional and technical competencies of leaders may change somewhat with the changing of environment or environmental context, the foundational elements of responsible leadership are consistent and have permanence to them through time. What I mean by that is that a responsible leader has a value system which is deeply rooted in the moral conscience of the leader. And a responsible leader, from that point of view, is also the moral conscience of the organization it leads. Responsible leadership has never been more important than it is now to make that successful transition into the future. So you mentioned a few things there that are all really difficult to do, right? So having a focus on others rather than oneself, humans aren't always so good at that. Being able to think about future generations, so having a long-term time horizon in mind, humans aren't so good at that. And being able to attend to multiple stakeholders simultaneously, we're also not so good at that. So how do you, how do you develop those orientations? None of which necessarily come naturally. Yeah. I think one of the ways to develop those skills, in my view, is your self-awareness. Because we operate in a human context. We operate in an organizational context. And if you have the awareness, that where are your shortcomings? Where are the areas where you need to develop yourself? And what are the kind of people you want to have in your team who complement you or help you fill up those gaps and where you collectively and cohesively move forward 
pursuing the same vision and the value system. It really starts from your self-awareness as a leader. And then you put that in the context of what the challenges in the environment are, what the destination is, because it's important that you understand where you're going, but at the same time have the ability to navigate your way to that destination. How do you develop self-awareness, do you think? What, what, are, the, what are the concrete things that you do to make sure that you remain self-aware? I think making sure that you are taking a continuous feedback, you are listening to other diverse perspectives, and you are encouraging an environment where people feel psychologically safe to raise their point of view. And diversity in a soul is shades as you build an organization with different perspectives, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, gender, and all, all those different elements. I think that in itself creates an environment where you have the opportunity to listen to different perspectives, learn from it, and then take those opinions and views on board to shape the destination and the journey. And the other thing, Celia, that I have always said that as a leader, the first and the most important thing you have is your credibility. And I have very consciously protected that. And I just want to make sure that what I say and what I do, there is no divergence in it. And I've been communicating that openly to the staff, my leadership team, in town halls, to 26, 27,000 people in over 100 markets. And I would say, if you ever see that what I say and what I do, there is a divergence, call me out and call me out publicly. When you create an environment of that nature and that's the ethos and the culture you develop, then people essentially are not shy of giving their opinion because they know that they can save and in fact, they will get appreciated. I am sitting in a meeting and naturally some people are more extrovert. They are better at raising their views and opinions. Others are not. I always make it a point to call out or reach out or draw upon the people who generally will not speak. That way, I always ensure that I'm taking on board everyone's opinion. And I think that's a very good way of creating a lot more considered opinion about an issue or about a course of action. And I think that's a very good way of getting to know yourself. And if you have any pitfalls, you're making mistakes. So let's talk a little bit about your career background and background more generally, because I have wondered whether or not, or I've been curious about the extent to which that plays into your passion for eliciting and integrating diverse perspectives, right? You got your first degrees from the University of Punjab. You have a degree from MIT. You lived in several different geographic locations, all of which require adaptability and integration of different perspectives. Yeah. So Celia, the first thing is having worked for three, four years in Pakistan after my MBA, I went to MIT, as you mentioned, for my second management degree. And this gave me really a great exposure, awareness and appreciation of diversity of people and different points of view. And I think it also assisted me 
in my confidence tremendously when you are in that diverse environment you are in an international environment and your ability to relate to people listen to different point of view and that gives you a lot of motivation and impetus to learn so when i return i decided to experience different parts of banking to become a broad based business leader rather than specializing in one area or the other you know i experienced corporate bank a bit of investment banking transaction banking consumer banking operations and technology and i think that decision after i came back from mit was a big turning point for me i think all these things and working through different geographies gave me that appreciation of diversity how you work together different parts of the bank work together and how do you actually work adapt yourself into different cultural environment and one of the examples which i think i'm very proud of that when i was serving with an affiliate of city in saudi arabia we were the first group of managers who actually started hiring women into the bank which was somewhat unprecedented considering the cultural and the social and religious constraints and today if you look back the same bank is being run by a chief executive is a woman chief executive officer our own city banks capital markets organization is run by a woman so the point which i'm making is that at the time no matter how small a step it seems but a step in the right direction can initiate a generational process and it can bring about a positive change which we are seeing right now in saudi arabia is opening up generally is opening up and women are getting lot more mainstream opportunities as opposed to be the case 25 30 years ago what do you think triggered your interest in promoting particularly women's advancement issues i think there is a economic logic to it there is a social logic to it and there is generally a human logic to it and i was always extremely aware of diversity one of the things when we were growing up we are seven brothers and sisters and our father used to tell us that you know you are the first generation where most of you are going to live your lives internationally and when you live your lives internationally you just have to make sure that you appreciate people who are different than you you appreciate diversity and you don't pass value judgment on people who may be different than you and i think that prediction all seven of us worked internationally and that particular lesson really helped me diverse point of views gender women bring different styles of leadership bring different qualities into it they have different experiences similarly men and that creates a complementary outcome and you end up making the right decisions by entertaining different points of view i feel like you must have learned a lot about managing teams and conflict growing up with six siblings yeah <laughs> that's a, that's a lot of uh relationships to manage simultaneously yeah i think it does teach you building relationships adaptability give and take and the good thing about us is that all of us get along very well all of us are academically very accomplished 
And I think that training and that sports system, plus managing that tension when growing up, you know, seven is a crowd that does help you and prepare you for life in a way. Where not everyone might have the same ambitions or desires or, you know, movie to watch or what to have for dinner. (laughs) Yes, exactly. What do you consider the most important lesson you learned from your parents? One I've already mentioned, that appreciate diversity, don't pass value judgment on people who are different than you are, look for positives in people. But the second one, which I think was a very important lesson, and that was, I think it's very important what you achieve in life, but it's equally, if not more important, how you really do it. I remember that our father, quite a few times he would mention that if you pursue your career or whatever your ambition may be, with integrity, with transparency, with your value system intact, then let the chips fall where they may. And optically, even if you come short, you will be a lot happier, you'll be much better off than would be the case otherwise. And in my pursuit in life, I have that kept that lesson very close to my heart. So you've, you've been at City for nearly two decades and crossed several geographies and areas of the bank, been responsible for leading the, the businesses at the bank that contribute the most to the bottom line of the entire institution. Of all of those accomplishments, what do you consider your, the one that you're most proud of? Yeah, Celia, you know, all of us have different experience and achievements in our careers. I have been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to build new businesses, grow businesses, turn around businesses which were making losses or were not doing very well. But if you ask me what gave me the greatest sense of accomplishment, and that is to establish treasury and trade solution as the most valuable business in the company and the industry over the last 10 years. It was not so much the financial and economic side of that accomplishment, which of course is part of it, but mostly it is an outcome. What makes me particularly proud is how we got there by shaping the culture of collaboration, promoting diversity, a culture of transparency, integrity, talent development, great sense of purpose. And it is the culture which we created over the last 10 years in that business, which engendered and created that outcome. And to me, there's nothing which has given me greater sense of satisfaction than to see people grow and realize their potential. And many of the team members who were with me for the last nine, 10 years are in very senior leadership positions today, either within the company or within the industry. What about challenges? Through all of the, what I've read about you, it's, it's success after success, but none of us managed to escape some sorts of uh, challenges or failures along the way. Celia, you know, I think failures and disappointments are the best teachers if one is prepared to learn from them. It enables you to become more resilient, 
you discover those qualities which are really obscure within you and gives you the ability to crack course. But also I think it teaches you the ability to hold two conflicting sentiments or emotions and still retain the ability to go on to be successful. And those two conflicting emotions are your desire to succeed and yet you are facing a failure or supposedly a setback. And keeping those two emotions in your mind and still be able to operate and be successful, I think that is a remarkable skill. So one of the things when I came to London in 1999, Western Europe, which I was responsible for, was making a lot of losses for multiple reasons. And the challenge was, how do you turn it around? Eventually, is a successful story, but for 18 to 24 months, it was extremely challenging. Restructuring the business, repositioning the business, and things of those nature. Eventually, we got there. But I think that experience, what it has taught me about myself and some of those things I discovered as a leader, and it has served me exceedingly well, and I would not have been able to do that otherwise. And then, you know, one of the things I want to quote, if you allow me, from my favorite leader, Nelson Mandela, he said that, don't judge me by my successes. Judge by how many times I fell down and got back up again. And I think that is a very important lesson in life that you should have the ability to take setbacks, bounce back, and then keep going. Well, of, of any leader that could be a model, um, Nelson Mandela certainly knows how to be resilient in the face of setbacks. That's an inspiration for sure. So you mentioned holding two different emotions and being able to reconcile them in your head. As you know, I'm really interested in the, in the idea of moral conflict, right? And, and managing how people manage morally conflicting situations. What makes you feel moral conflict at work and how do you manage it when you experience it? I think it's a it's an extremely important question. And generally in organizations, you will see that it is relatively easier to address the significant ethical or moral issues as there are clear policies, principles, laws, and, you know, recourse. It is those gray areas, nuanced moral and ethical issues, which I think which gnaws at the fabric of the organization over a period of time. And all of a sudden, organization is facing a major issue or a doomsday scenario. For me, it was always very important pursuing that lesson that it's important how you achieve a certain outcome. The process, the integrity of it, with the right value system is extremely important. And I always tried within my limited capacity to ground my value system into my conscious. And it really gives you the ability to detect and address such issues a lot quicker. I think what I have tried to do is to address these issues as they arise, even if it puts you in a position of conflict but you should not let these issues fester. Because if you let these issues fester, 
over a period of time, these issues then accumulate. And like I said, all of a sudden, you are in a much serious situation uh, as opposed to if you were to address it right from the outset. That is a principle I have always followed, even if I'm getting into a situation of conflict. And subsequently, as you and I discussed, I think a while back, it gives you a much greater sense of satisfaction as a professional. Well, that, I mean, it's so interesting because people often, those situations do fester because they are frightening, right? So you talk about the importance of psychological safety and the reason why situations of moral conflict at work often end up problematic is is that people shy away from addressing them because it requires leaning into some discomfort. So how how have you developed the skill or ability or willingness to lean into that discomfort? There is a style thing and there is a substance thing. I think in these situations like these, you have to make sure your style is not intimidating, but you're not compromising on the substance of the issue. Typically what happens is we confuse the two and that leads to typically a situation of conflict which can be explosive. So what I have done is over a period of time, I've always tried to keep my composure and always try to explain it in a manner that it does not point fingers or it does not blame somebody. You explain it in a manner that there is an awareness about the issue. How can it potentially impact us? What are the consequences? And my, my view is that generally, if you explain it rationally, then I think the organization does come around. So that, I mean, that's really good advice. What do you consider to be the best and worst pieces of advice that were ever given to you? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, you know, the best advice, you know, I probably already touched a couple of them from my parents, but if I have to take another one, it will be like, live your life on an even keel, which helps you managing highs and lows of your life journey. Uh, don't be overly exuberant when you are successful and don't be too despondent or depressed when things are not going your way. And I think that's a very simple but a golden principle to live your life in a measured and sensible manner. You know, in terms of the Worse advice, you know, people, the, these are the things, you know, depend upon your perspective. But, you know, so for example, ignore what others say. I know it has a specific context, but for me, you know, if you take it literally, you may run the risk of shutting out sources of valuable perspectives, as I mentioned earlier, and opportunities for self-development and improvement. The other one is don't rock the boat. And that is, by the way, is the surest way to oblivion. You know, you need to continue to reinvent yourself, reinvent your company, reinvent the world. And that requires sometimes supposedly rocking the boat. And I know people say that in a specific context, but these are some of the things, if you take them literally, they don't help you professionally. So you got to look at these things and process them accordingly. I love that, that not rocking the boat is the shortest way to oblivion. That's great. 
So this next section of the interview is is sort of a a quicker round where the objective is to um, help us get to know you through a series of of pretty quick questions. The first one is, what is your favorite work of fiction and why? My favorite work of fiction is a novel which came in 2007, published in 2007, a Pakistani author, Mohsen Hamid, and the title is Reluctant Fundamentalist. And it essentially attempts to bridge the divide between Eastern and Western cultures, particularly in the post 9-11 world. It creates empathy and addresses some of the unconscious biases which has created those divides. It was made into a major uh, motion picture and it has also been prescribed in many universities in the United States. So that is one piece of fiction, which I really think is very good. And I can give you another one by the same author, which was uh, published in 2017, Exit West. The title is Exit Mm -hmm. West. You might have heard about it. And this is really talking about trials and tribulations of refugees. And it's built around a young couple who lives in an unnamed city undergoing civil war and this couple finally flees that city. It's a very cleverly built story to capture the issues of migration, reasons behind it, the challenges immigrants face, and assimilation into destination countries, and how it creates tension between immigrants and the natives. And this is very topical, as you can see around the world. Yeah, I think we learn a lot from from reading viscerally held experiences of others who are unlike us and going through challenging situations that are that are far from our own experience. What secret skill do you have? I would actually say two. One is I am very good at organizing and home management. And secondly, my skill of persuasion, which I typically use with my wife, why the house need to be organized in a certain way. So what, what do you what do you mean the pantry no. the the coat cupboard no, no, it's, it's things it's anything okay from time to time I would like to reorganize let's say sitting room or my study so give it a fresh look you move the paintings around you move the stuff around and it gives you a new unique and fresh look but for that I have to go through a process of persuasion because because it is really the domain of my better half. And I think generally she tends to agree with my approach. I really enjoy I really enjoy doing that. And the second one is that I take on a project in addition to my job and all that, which I work typically on my time on the weekends. And the last project which I finished some time back, it took me seven years, and that was publishing my father's writings and and a book around it. So my father was a economist by training. He was a banker by profession, agriculturist by background, but his passion was really writing. So he would write on all kinds of topics, social, economic, politics, sports, and it will publish in... Uh, local and international journals and newspapers. So he would keep those cuttings 
And when he passed away, we had about six, 7,000 of those articles. And I said, How, what do we do about it? So I took on that project and I said, let's convert that into a coffee table book for his memory and a family history and all that. So it took me seven years, but the result has been outstanding. And I can show you a copies lying here. And, and the title is The Thoughts of Our Father, a tribute to Sultan Ahmed Chaudhary by the family. And on the back is really, you know, my mother. So this is, this is a coffee table book, very professionally done. This whole thing was designed by me, organized by me, and everything, and it was a surprise for my family when I unveiled it. And if you go to a bookshop, and this book is lying there in the right section, you will not be able to tell that this is done privately or is, is so professionally done. So I really enjoy that. It's a very good way of, it gives you a great sense of accomplishment, plus it gives you a good way to refresh yourself away from work. Well, it's nice having projects that have concrete outcomes, you know, that are very, like that you could just hold that yeah, up. Yeah, exa- exactly. Right? That's, it's incredibly satisfying to do that. Do you have a personal motto? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I think about these things, and sometimes it may sound like a cliche, but I genuinely believe in these things. Random acts of kindness, I think, are very important in life. And then the other one, which I communicate, both from a culture point of view as well as from a business management point of view, that every conversation, every interaction, every moment is an opportunity in making a difference, no matter how small, to someone else's life. You run into somebody in the elevator, you run into somebody in the corridor, or you just have a 30-second, one-minute conversation. If you have that in your mind that I'm going to make it meaningful for this person, so this person walks away better off, hopefully, and you will be better off too. And so that is my motto. I have always tried to practice that. And again, I can give you one, I can talk about this topic a lot, but I'll give you a quotation again from Mandela. And he said, there can be no greater gift than that of giving one's time and energy to help others without expecting anything in return. Throughout my life, I have tried to practice it. And I tell you, there's nothing which makes me happier if I think in a way I helped somebody. And I mentor a lot of young people. They reach out to me and I'm always prepared to give them time to have a conversation to the extent it's helpful. Well, it's interesting that you say that. I, I have observed that you have high levels of emotional intelligence, which I teach as having both an awareness of oneself and others' emotions and an ability to self-regulate your own and others' emotions. So you talked about having an even keel, right? That is a, a manifestation of emotional intelligence and finding ways to make others' lives positive in a, in really small ways is a nut, is a way of managing re, helping others regulate and improve their own emotions. Uh, so I think it's interesting that that there's sort of a consistency of your approach there. 
What is your favorite way to unwind? My, my way to unwind actually is, is, you may find it little unusual, is that reflecting on my blessings and have a great sense of gratitude. And then the second thing I do is, I really have this habit of observing and reflecting on miracles of life and universe. And that is appreciating anything about the universe. My best way is that I appreciate people. I'm a very keen observer of human behavior. And I always try and learn from others. And my best way to learn is interacting with people. Doesn't matter who they are. I always look for motivation in unusual places. If I'm interacting with somebody on on the roadside, I'm in a restaurant, I'm interacting with a waiter, or I'm interacting with a young analyst, or I'm interacting with a receptionist, I have this ability to draw something out of that interaction. And I find that absolutely fascinating. And of course, then if you want to be more specific, you know, I, I enjoy reading quite a bit, spending time with the family, the usual stuff. There's not one specific thing, but it's generally speaking, having a reflection and appreciating of the beauty and the miracle of life. Well, I love the idea of gratitude. It's something that I get better and worse at in different periods of my life. Um, and now that I've heard about your your interest in, in organizing your house, I'm curious about if you had to do something entirely different with your life, would it be interior design? Yeah, okay. that could be. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I really enjoy those kind of things. But if you really ask me, if I were to do something entirely different, I'll probably go into teaching. And the reason I say that is, I, I have taught for the first three years of my, after I graduated from Pakistan, my MBA. I taught in the same university for three years and I developed two courses in fundamentals of marketing and international marketing. And the way you learn yourself when you think, when you know you have to teach the next day, you don't learn otherwise. And secondly, it's about making a difference. You can actually look at cause and effect. You can directly gauge the contribution you're making to help people grow, acquire new concepts, understand new ways of doing things. And that gives you a great sense of gratitude and satisfaction. We're going to pause my conversation with Naveed here. Join me for the next episode where we discuss the leader who inspired him the most, bonus points if you can guess who it is, the importance of team culture, recognizing merit, and Naveed's hopes for the future. See you next time. Responsible is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership at Imperial College Business School and is sponsored by City. Created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Moutry, who are Pronk Productions. I'm Celia Moore. I'll see you next time.